Alright students, welcome now to the epilogue to Homer's Odyssey and introduction lecture one to Sophocles and Athenian tragedy. We have here in front of us a fragment, a synopsis of a fragment in fact, by uh, um, uh, Proclus uh, maintained in his Crestomathia of the Telegony, which is supposedly a summary or a fragment sum summary of the epic that came after the Odyssey. Recall that the Odyssey is part of a cycle of epics called the Epic Cycle of which we only have two uh, complete versions uh, remaining, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but recall that there were several others, including the Nostoi that came between the Iliad and the Odyssey. That was the Returns. That was uh, the epic in which you see Menelaus attempt to get home, Agamemnon attempt to get home, Idomeneus, Nestor, uh, etc. Um, and recall also that there was the Little Iliad, the Sack of Ilium, etc. In any case, this is the fragment of the final piece of the puzzle of the epic, uh, of the epic cycle, and this uh, will showcase how Odysseus dies. So I thought about just reading the whole thing to you, but I think I did a pretty good job of summarizing it. So let's note this. The Telegony. Telegonus is the name of one of the sons of Odysseus, and uh, depending on the account, it is either the son that he had illegitimately by Circe, who, with whom he spent a year with, and as you know, uh, uh, lay with, uh, uh, at, uh, under the instruction of Hermes in order to get his men to be turned back from pigs. And uh, according to a second source that we'll see in just a moment, um, uh, Telegonus was the son of uh, Calypso. And you recall also that Odysseus, while held captive by Calypso, lay with her as well. And um, we may have something to say about that later. We may also may not pick up that thread. In any case, the Telegony is itself written sort of illegitimately or illegitimately conspired. It is not, or, or, or inspired, it was not produced by Homer. It was produced by a man named Eugamon of Cyrene. Um, and so note that it is not Homer that wrote this. And so if you wish to consider this an apocryphal account rather than canon, uh, uh, non-standard, then you are perfectly welcome to. So what happens during this account? Odysseus sails to inspect his herds in Elis. He has uh, herds uh, off of Ithaca in the adjoining islands around. And after, after the defeating the super. So he has to take account of what it is he has. What is it that they've been eating? How much wealth does he have less or left? Now it's time for him to add back to his wealth. And he is entertained there by a kind man named Polysamus, which uh, you can see in his name there, the word Zinnia, stranger, friend, guest, host, uh, and also poly, many, like polygon, many-sided. And so many guests is uh, uh, essentially what the name of the man who uh, entertains him is. He then is told a story of Algeus and other people, and so we see a story containing the story again, just like the Odyssey, and also sacrifices to Tiresias. Sacrifices to Tiresias, because it was Tiresias that first told Odysseus what he would have to do, the journeys that were to come after he left the underworld, uh, and his um, combat with the suitors under the curse of Poseidon, as well as... Um, uh, his, his adventures after he defeated the suitors, if he defended the suitors, having to go to a land where the people knew nothing of the sea, who had purple cheeks, where he would have to plant his oar, and then he would die from something either away from the sea or out from the sea in an unwarlike way. And we'll have to uh, consider that that curse, uh, uh, that piece of the curse, at the end of uh, at, at the end of the first part of the lecture, at the end of the epilogue to the Odyssey. In any case, he then next goes to another island. So the next place he goes to is Thesprosia after going to Elis. And there he marries a queen named Caladice. And the, uh, the question we all ask, even though that we know that he's sort of cheated on Penelope, uh, uh, spoken in a 
sort of a crude way uh, with Cersei and Calypso, even though it is the case that with Cersei, he was of course forced to by a god, uh, Hermes, he was instructed to rather, in order to get his men back with Calypso, as you know, he was a captive, so what was he really free uh, not to choose? Was he really free not to do as she did? Uh, these are questions. Uh, why is it that Odysseus, who is married to the very much still alive Penelope, might marry another woman? I wonder if what this writer was thinking was that since Penelope and Odysseus knew that they would never see each other again after Odysseus left Ithaca, whether their marriage was null and void. I don't know that that's actually what this author was thinking, but that's the only um, sort of uh, extra thought I can confabulate about that. In any case, uh, Odysseus will return back to Ithaca, which is all the otter, and uh, he will no longer be married to Caladice when he uh, does. Because war breaks out between these Thesprotians and a people called the Brigi. Odysseus then, now a king of the Thesprotians, as he is now the consort husband of their queen, uh, Caladice, um, he leaves the, the Thesprotians as their king, or as their uh, warlord, as their general. Athena and Ares then directly engage each other. Recall last time that didn't go very well for Ares. He was laid out over, uh, I believe, nine fathoms by uh, Athena. And even Aphrodite, when she attempted to drag him off, herself got uh, a smacking on the chest by Athena. Well, eventually it is Apollo who breaks them up and uh, the war ends. I imagine the Thesprotians win. We don't have much information there because Odysseus happens to still be alive, so that makes me think that they won. Um, and uh, sadly... Caladice then later dies for undisclosed reasons. I don't know if that's in connection with the war uh, or, or comes long afterwards. In any case, she does die, and Odysseus then uh, uh, leaves as their son, named Polypoetes, I should have written that up there, uh, succeeds to her throne. I'll write that right here right now, Polypoetes. It means many works, Polypoetes. You can see the word poet in there, which means maker, and poly, which turns into multi in, um, in uh, Latin. It becomes essentially many with us. A multitude of things is a minitude of things. <laughs> in any case, Odysseus then returns to Ithaca. And again, I ask the question, were these Thesprotians supposed to be the purple-cheeked people who knew nothing of the sea? Potentially. Uh, potentially not, because of course Odysseus is coming back to Ithaca, which was not part of the prophecy that Tiresias told him in Book 11 of the, um, of the Odyssey. In any case, uh, a boy named Telegonus, means uh, long-sighted, gonos there, uh, like polygon, means sight. Tele means far from. That's why a telescope shows you things that are far from you, and a telephone sends your voice far from you, and uh, uh, a telecast sends uh, TV everywhere. In any case, uh, cast it broadly. The, this boy named Telegonus arrives on Odysseus's island, and he raids his land for cattle. Well, Odysseus is back, and so Odysseus goes out to fight and defend his land. Now, for the first time, we see him defending his, well, not the first time, I suppose the second time we see him defending his uh, land from invaders, though this is the first time, really, this is an outside invader. Really, the invasion of the suitors is an invasion from within, because they are fellow citizens of Ithaca and the surrounding Island. So that's more of an insurrection, more of a civil strife. This is uh, far more like uh, Achaeans coming to Troy, except for in this case it's sort of like Trojans coming to uh, Achaea, except for the fact that Telegonus is obviously not a Trojan. Alright, in any case, the boy kills Odysseus, not knowing that Odysseus is his father. And so Odysseus' identity is again 
disguised from somebody, causing them to treat him in a different way than they otherwise would have had they known his identity. And uh, uh, Telegonus is, at least according to Eugamon of Cyrene here, the son of Circe and of Odysseus's coupling on Iaia during that year when Odysseus spent his time there. Telegonus then, and this is where this story starts to get a bit odd, and I often see wrinkled brows and arched eyebrows and uh, noses uh, puckered up. Telegonus then takes Telemachus and Penelope to Iaia. Circe there makes them all immortals. This is sort of, uh, uh, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this convention at the end of a story where even though something tragic happens, everything is made better in some way. And I'll, I'll give you a correlate in the Old Testament. Um, they're all made into immortals. You can tell this is not Homer as well because it doesn't have quite as um, pessimistic a view of death. Obviously with Homer you die, you go down to the underworld, you're dead. Yeah, Achilles doesn't much care for being dead, and, well, who would? Um, here, though, you'll see that uh, the reward is slightly better. Circe then marries Telemachus, which everybody always thinks is a bit weird, because obviously uh, Odysseus had lay with Circe and had a son by Circe in this account, Telegonus, and now uh, Telemachus is now going to marry Circe and then have children with him. So he will himself have uh, children who have uh, dual relationships with their uncle, uh, to Ligonus. Yes, so that's a bit odd. In any case, uh, the, 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 uh, the coupling that sometimes students find a little bit odder is Penelope then marrying Telegonus because they think uh, the mother of Odysseus's child, Telemachus, is now marrying the son of, Telem of Odysseus's uh, uh, other wife, not wife though, Circe. And so uh, remember though, there is no family connection between Circe and uh, Telemachus. Telemachus had never met Circe. And Circe had never met Telemachus in any case. They're, they're all gods in essence now, and so they can do that sort of thing. Very odd, though, I, I think. Uh, I often wonder whether this ending is given to us in order to sort of satisfy us in this way. What is it that Penelope did not get to have during the course of her life? Well, she was a young wife, married as a young person. And then when her husband came back to her, she was already old, and her child had already been raised. So I wonder if the idea behind this story is that because her life was so tragic, she's given a second chance at life. She's given a chance now to have a young Odysseus clone, Telegonus, his son, essentially a clone of him, uh, who defeated him and so therefore is as strong as him, if not stronger. And she gets to live with him on a magical island and then start a new family and be young all over again. And I think that that's sort of a beautiful story but also, in a way, sort of an ugly story, because that is absolutely not how life works. It is not the case that if you lose 20 years of your life, you can simply be given them back. I think that this is an optimistic way of looking at things, but not a correct way of looking at things. I think Homer is much more hard-edged and will teach you much more about how reality actually works. This is far more like how a Renaissance epic, a fancy, a fanciful elf story works. In any case, if you ever read the old Book of Job, you'll see a character who gets put through everything. He loses his family. He loses his health. He loses his friends. He loses his relationship even with God. And, uh, but then at the end, he's given everything again in double. He's given a new family, but it's twice as big. He's given all his wealth back, but it's twice as good. He's given all his health back. And then at the end, you're like, uh, um, did I really learn from that story what I was supposed to? I thought what I was supposed to learn is, during life, you can lose what? Everything. Probably you will at some point when you die. And uh, that's, that's why the old Vikings would put all, your, um, they'd put all your possessions on the ship with your dead body and send it off into the waves. It's like, well, you know, you're not going to be doing much with those possessions at that point. In any case, uh, I, I think this story uh, is clearly not Homer for that res 
respect, and I don't really, I don't really consider this canon. I consider it apocryphal, and I also don't think that Odysseus died in quite the right way with quite the right people. These Thesprotians, did they know about the sea? Probably. These Thesprotians, did he stay with them and die with them? No. Uh, did he die in an unwarlike way? Also, no. He died fighting. And uh, did he die far away from the sea? No. He died from somebody coming out from the sea at him. Supposedly, Telegonus had taken a uh, stingray and put its poison on his spear, and so he poisoned Odysseus. The only way you could see that as an unwarlike death is because he dies from the poison on the weapon rather than the weapon itself. And that takes a, you really have to uh, thinly reason there. In any case, now, Eustathius says that the author of the Telegony was a Cyrenaean, which means uh, somebody from Cyrene, which means could have been Eugamon. But he relates that Odysseus had by Calypso a son named Telegonus, or Telodamus. And then also he includes a weird detail, which I think shows that he didn't know his uh, Odyssey very well, which is this, that Penelope had not only Telemachus, but also a second son, Acusileus. Now, while I think that's clearly an error in reading, by this Eustathius, or by the Cyrenaean who wrote this account, is that uh, one of the unique features of Odysseus is that he is a single son from a single son who has a single son. And so if all of a sudden he has two sons, then um, that messes up the narrative in Homer. And so I think that that's sort of an unclosed reading by this particular author. I, I, I don't have any further evidence for that, but uh, why would you change Homer, uh, a, a fact of Homer, if unless you had uh, just failed to recognize it or forgotten it for that moment. And in case, this, is, uh, this has been the epilogue to the Odyssey, and these are the very strange happenings which come after. And I just encourage you to philosophically think about this, because um, many people, I think, think the story or the lives of characters in when the story ends. Something I encourage you to do when you watch any movie, any show, is see uh, whether the stories are, or the characters are still alive, and then to wonder for yourself how their lives might end at some point. Often stories end when people are still, especially comedies, happy and young, right after a marriage. It's like, okay, you have your whole life ahead of you, which also means you have what ahead of you? The end of your life, your death. And so I, I encourage you to always notice that just because a story ends does not mean that the life of the characters end and that they will still have to face uh, their fates at some point or another. In any case, we have done that with uh, all of Homer that still exists at this point. Alright, okay, so yes, uh, just these notes that I told you. An alternative fragment is preserved by Eustathius Contraproclus's Crestomathia. Eustathius claims that a Cyrenaean, could, which could still be Eugamon, as he was also from Cyrene, was the writer of this work. The name of this work was also Telegony. In it, Odysseus had an illegitimate son, that means a son outside of marriage, wedlock as it's called, uh, with Calypso, not with Circe. His name was also Telegonus, but also potentially Teledamus. All these ancient people with their names often changing. Words often sound very similar to each other. Odysseus also had two sons by Penelope, Telemachus and Acusileus. Rather than just one, as in the Homeric epics. Okay, and as I was saying, this will now conclude our time with uh, the ancient Greek epics. The next time we see an epic, it will be a Roman epic. All right. Uh, second part of today's lecture, introduction to Athenian tragedy and to the tragedian Sophocles. Now, interestingly enough, you're going to see some beautiful art during the course of this lecture, so sorry to those of you listening to this, not seeing it. Uh, 
couple features of the Athenian sage I want you to notice there. What is on the faces of these characters? Just blurt it out. Masks, yes, they're called persona. They all wear masks. And how many of these guys are on stage right now? Three. You will never see more than three total characters on stage minus the carrot, or minus the chorus. And I'll talk about what the chorus is uh, very, very soon. Sounds like our word chorus, where a bunch of people are singing. It's essentially the same sort of thing, um, except for they're an actor in the play. They represent a body of people. Uh, sort of like if I had a chorus in my classroom, it would be the students. There would be a bunch of you, but you would be one uh, body. Uh, also, I said guys, meaning that what is the gender of these particular individuals? Men. They are all males, just like the Elizabethan stage. So even when they're playing ladies, and they have funny uh, wig-like hair and a funny lady-like face, they are all men. It was supposedly uh, true even in the East, in the kabuki theaters of the, um, of the Japanese, that they also wear masks. And they also are all males over there. So very interesting. Not always a reputable uh, profession throughout the history of Western uh, uh, culture to be an actor, too. During the time of Shakespeare, when Shakespeare wrote our greatest uh, writer in English, the greatest writer of all time, for, uh, by many people's estimation, even he was considered a little bit disreputable to have been an actor. You know, you travel around from city to city, you're a bit like a sailor, a bit like a pirate. You take the good things from the city and then you leave. That was the idea. Not so much here with Athens. Um, here is a picture of the Acropolis, that's a hill overlooking uh, uh, Athens, and this is a rendition of what the theater of Dionysus would have looked like. It supposedly could have seated 15,000 people, which is about half as many people as a football stadium uh, these days, maybe a third if it's a really big stadium. Some of the stadiums nowadays, it used to be 30 or 40,000 people, now you can get like 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people in a football stadium. And in a soccer stadium, I think you get upwards of 100,000 people. But still, quite a few people. In any case, let's now talk about the Greek stage, the Athenian stage, to be more specific, however. Now, three great tragedians um, uh, emerged during the 5th century. And note that we are jumping uh, about 250 years into the future. Homer wrote and spoke, we don't know whether he ever actually wrote, in the 8th century. We often say around 750, around the exact same time that uh, Rome came to be in the very beginning time, uh, which was just about 750, we think, as well. Well, now we're jumping uh, 300 years or so into the future to around the time of 480, 450. Sophocles wrote alongside two other great tragedians. Their names were, I should have put Aeschylus first, Aeschylus, who was born in 525 or 524, dating's a little bit difficult, uh, to 556 or 456 to 455. Notice that when we're in BCE time or BC time, we count downwards towards zero, and then we count back up for ADCE time again. Euripides was younger than Sophocles. He was born in 480 BCE and lived until 406. Both these guys lived pretty long lives. And then I also list for you a comic playwright, not a tragedian. His name was Aristophanes. It's a very interesting character. He wrote uh, works called The, the Clouds, Lysistrata, The Frogs, which is probably my favorite. Um, and uh, he's actually a main character in one of Plato's dialogues called The Symposium, where he gives a speech on how man was originally a unity, including man and woman, but was split in half, which is uh, uh, charmingly similar to the Old Testament account of woman being made from the rib of a man. 
uh, though a, a little bit uh, less, uh, you might say chauvinist in this respect, in that they were both equal in the beginning, equally one, and then, uh, and rather than one becoming uh, a whole after having been a part. In any case, Sophocles wrote, uh, I, I don't know why I still have this uh, line in here, uh, the play that he wrote in around 441 BC, which you don't need to write, is called Antigone. We will be reading the Antigone second. He did supposedly write that before Oedipus the king, but Oedipus the king uh, uh, comes earlier in the sequence than uh, Antigone, even though he wrote it earlier. Be kind of like you writing a story first about uh, Troy and then about the Egyptians. You write about the time that came before, but you write it afterwards. Um, also note that personae, like I said, masks were worn. All men were on the stage, and three people maximum were allowed on stage at once, minus the chorus. Now, where did the stories for these plays often come from? Well, they came from where we have seen uh, where they would come from. They often came from epics like Homer's. And I don't know why that one's not showing right there, but it should say like Homer's Iliad and like Homer's Odyssey. Good. All right. So, I've been talking about the stage, and I've been talking about drama. Well, drama is itself split into two. Tragedy and comedy. Well, so... Let's think about first what makes a tragedy. Often a hero or an anti-hero, who is called our protagonist, our first person of the, uh, of the story, goes from a state of grace to a fallen state. They experience a fall from grace, which is a drop in status or estimation. They go from being at the height to being to the depths. They go from being in a place of exaltation to a place of humiliation. They go from what's high to what's low. Um, it's often, that's very tragic to us because we, we watch them lose something that's very valuable to them. And, uh, uh, often their status, often their families, often their wealthy, often, or their wealth, often their reputations, often things that we would tremendously value ourselves. Now in the case of Oedipus the king, we're going to see a hero who becomes a king, uh, uh, become an object of disgrace, slash an, uh, a, a person, uh, persona non grata, a person of, uh, who uh, arouses disgust in you. You're going to go from looking up to him to being disgusted by him, and uh, very quickly during the course of the play. Now, something interesting, which is said by Aristotle about characters in tragic plays, is that in order to emphasize the fact that they are in an exalted state, and then fall uh, to a much lower state, um, is that they're often nobler and even superior to everyday humans. They're often sort of like taller, handsomer, of higher rank. They're often uh, nobility, like kings or queens. Um, and they, they often have much to lose. Big families, lots of wealth, great reputations, which uh, helps you to see that like sort of the, the Christian story of Lucifer falling is sort of like the ultimate tragedy. It is like a super perfect being who has almost everything, who loses almost everything. In fact, when you read Milton next year, uh, or sorry, when you read Dante next year, a description of Lucifer's ugliness will be, if he was once as handsome as he now is ugly, he must have been the most beautiful creature in all of existence. Meaning, of course, that he is so ugly now that it is unthinkable that he was ever handsome. Alright, now, uh, what makes a comedy exactly, then? Well, a comedy is, in many respects, the opposite of a tragedy, just in the same way that above a theater you see a smiling face, which indicates comedy will happen there, and a sad face, indicating that, of course, there will be a tragedy there. And you might wonder whether those, those masks are supposed to represent the actors or you. 
or, or is the sad face you crying while you go to watch the tragedy, whereas the happy face is you laughing. Of course, humans, very odd creatures, do go to watch tragic films as well as plays, even to this day in America, and uh, far more frequently go to see comic ones. Why do you go somewhere just to do that odd thing called laughing? Why do you go somewhere to do that odd thing called crying? Either seems very practical, and yet you'll spend uh, more money to do that than you will for most other things. Um, in fact, uh, the most recent Avengers, I think, made uh, some enormous sum of money, something well over $100 million. It's like, I, I don't think we pay $100 million for almost anything else besides that, but for stories, yes. Now, let's talk a little bit about how comedy is opposite from tragedy. Characters often come from uh, lower classes or are of lower stature, laughable, easy to parody. A good example of this would be someone like a Dolan or a Thersites or even an Elpinor. Elpinor, not the sharpest tool in the shed, not very smart, like Odysseus, easy to make fun of. Uh, Dolan, obviously very cowardly, lacking in moral stature. And then, of course, Thersites, he's lacking in physical stature, he's ugly, he's small, he seems to be out of shape, he's balding, he can't walk very well. And, and in fact, when you watch comic movies from here on out, I encourage you to see whether the comic actors are as handsome as, say, uh, dramatic actors. Like, are they handsome? Are they tall? Are they well-spoken? Are they successful? Or are they often, like, sort of represented as sort of uh, I, I, mm, pudgy losers who have a lot to learn. And, um, well, uh, that's something to think about. Uh, are your comedians generally nobler or less noble than other people? Do they make vulgar jokes to you, or do they make refined jokes to you? Um, yeah, I think once you see this lens, you will start to see uh, reality in a more differentiated way. In any case, observe that plays, and here I say that 15,000 people could gather at the Theater of Dionysus, which is where plays uh, did take place, especially the tragedies, during the course of the city Dionysia and, and the great Dionysia in Athens. They were uh, religious festivals. They can bring more people together at once to see a story and actually embody and differentiate the different characters with personae masks. And so you're seeing the development of a medium here. Not only is it the case that with a tragedy in a stadium, you can seat more people that see it at a time, but the... Uh, the, the, the manifestation of the art is more embodied. If I tell you a story, it's made of what? Words, some songs, some notes. But if I can actually show you the story, that's very different. And it makes, for, uh, uh, it makes access to the story far greater because you need far less imagination, far, more, uh, far less intelligence even to keep it all in your mind all at once. An epic recited over three or four days that's 15,000 lines long requires that you really focus on it. Uh, 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 a play that is 1,500 lines long, that's recited over the course of two hours, that has people running around on the stage with masks on, much easier to understand. You might now understand why perhaps you like, say, like unsophisticated um, uh, TV shows and their episodes rather than full-scale movies, or and why you probably like movies more than you like books. Books are much harder to uh, uh, ingest into you, not being able to see everything that's happening and also being far larger than uh, um, movies and shows. It's like, that's easy. Just like eating french fries is easier to do than learning to eat calamari, though calamari is quite good. In any case, this much larger venue would have made many more people privy to the recitation of an epic than uh, a Homeric Rhapsody. This also helps to create a culture in the people. 
if your people have access to all the same stories, and that is, uh, and other peoples do not have access to those same stories, that means that there's a common store of stories and information that your people have access to that other people do not. Which is, uh, uh, you might say that this is the beginning of the differentiation of the idea of the West. Hmm. In any case, the chorus. Now I told you, there's a thing called the chorus. There are three actors that are on the stage. They wear masks. They're all men. But there's also a chorus. Also wearing masks. Also wearing men. What is this chorus, this body of people that, uh, uh, that have three actions on the stage that are strophe, which means turn, antistrophe, which means counterturn, and epode, which means coming to the middle of the, um, the stage. And you really should think about that. You turn one way. You turn another. You come to the middle. That's sort of like doing what? What is it that you often do where you have to kind of walk around while you're doing it, and, but then you, you come to a pause. It's almost like you're, what is it you do? Maybe you have, you have something in your hand and it's up to your ear, and you just walk back and forth. What, what do we call that action? And what is the thing at your ear? What are you thinking? It's a phone, and what are you doing? Pacing. You're pacing. Pacing indicates that you're not simply walking. What are you doing while you pace? You're thinking, right? It's like they're thinking through something. The chorus is the first time that you get to see access to the thought patterns of people. It's not yet quite internal thought like you'll see in the novel, which is first developed in the 16th century of all times. Actually, sorry, the 17th century in Spain with uh, Don Quixote. Um, yeah, you don't get those inner monologues, really. Uh, you'll see also in Shakespeare's plays next year that uh, he has asides and soliloquies where you get to see the internal monologue of characters. But uh, this chorus is uh, going to come sort of close. It's going to uh, show what thought looks like between people who are conversing with each other, which is uh, a, generally a more effective way of thinking, which is why uh, therapists are very effective, because you actually speak out your thoughts with people rather than just trying to think them out. Most people aren't very good at actually thinking without giving a voice to their thoughts. They're not very specific. They're not very goal-oriented. They don't actually know what they think. In any case, uh, the chorus can play, a, uh, it can play a different part in different plays. Which part is it going to play in the two plays that we are going to see, Oedipus the King and Antigone? Well, here in Oedipus the King, it is the people of Thebes. Technically, it's actually... Uh, huh. Yeah, good, I have it there, good. It's actually the Theban elders. Theban elders, like the Senate of Thebes. And it's not only the Theban elders in the Oedipus the King, but also in Antigone, which both take place in Thebes, which is the uh, real place that had the mythological war at Thebes, which took place before the Trojan War. It was the first generation of the two generations of the uh, 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 generations of heroes. The, the, yes, the heroic age of the ancient Greeks. In any case, yes, 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 yes. Good, 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 good. In Oedipus the King, it is the Theban elders. Also, in Antigone, it is the Theban elders. You can see different approaches to representing the chorus in these slides. I'll show you this one. Pretty creepy looking. Aren't they creepy looking, looking at those masks like that? And then pretty creepy looking. And then uh, uh, there's Sophocles, sort of creepy looking. In any case, let's now focus. Let's uh, divert away from simply looking at Athens, the Athenian stage, what makes a tragedy, what makes a comedy, um, and what makes a chorus, and look at what makes a Sophocles. <laughs> This is introductory information on Sophocles' uh, work. Now, Sophocles was a tragic playwright from Athens. Notice that he, uh, his times come right between Euripides 
and Aeschylus. Aeschylus was the first big tragic figure and a hero from the Persian War. In fact, something very interesting about uh, Aeschylus. For as many victories as he had in um, the uh, city Dionysia and the tragedy competition, this was a competition. These Greeks were very competitive. They had not only the Olympics for physical competitions, but also the city Dionysia in which they would have speech competitions as well as uh, tragedy competitions. Um, that um, um, For all his victory and all his contributions to tragedy, Aeschylus had written on his tombstone that here lies a warrior who fought against the Persians. And so that's the only thing he takes, uh, that's the thing he takes greatest pride in. Sophocles came after him, and of course Euripides came after him. Now, Sophocles, as I say here, was the second of the three great tragedians after Aeschylus, before Euripides, whose work has survived. Moving on. Now, this is a bit of a bugbear for scholars. How, what comments can we make on the entirety of Sophocles' work? He supposedly wrote 123 total tragedies during the course of his career, which is a tremendous amount. It means his career was very long. He would generally uh, uh, write three tragedies per competition with one satyr play, uh, which means that it was like 35, 36, 37, 38, 39 years that he wrote it. And if you do like the multiplication there, maybe even 40, 40 times 3, 120, that's almost 123, so maybe 41 year long um, uh, career, uh, which is why I say almost 50 up there. Of those 123 plays, that he wrote, only seven survived. Now, uh, this makes it very difficult to interpret what sort of playwright he was in general, because um, if we only had, say, seven of Shakespeare's plays, well, there are, uh, his plays are very different from each other. He has comedies, he has problem plays, he has tragedies, he has uh, early tragedies, late tragedies, he has romances. His plays are very different in terms of style, content, and uh, pessimism versus optimism. Well, it could very well be the same with Sophocles. But all we have are seven plays left, so what we have to hope is that these are the seven plays which were considered best and are um, most uh, uh, representative of his style. But whenever I say something about Sophocles and his work, know that I'm only drawing on very few of the works that he ever wrote, which is, I think, a good reason why you should make everything you do as good as possible because you never know what's going to be left. And it is true that in the memories of others, they'll only remember very few things that you've done, so you probably want to do as good of things as possible, uh, as often as possible, so that their memories of you are as good as they can be. Now, what I told you about him and why we are reading him and not Euripides and Aeschylus, even though we have a lot more of Euripides' works than his, is because he was the most awarded playwright in the Dionysia dramatic competition of the city-state of Athens. Uh, how it would work was this. You'd write three tragedies. They would be performed on three consecutive days. They were not usually sequential. It wasn't usually like part one, part two, part three. They were usually all very different from each other, which uh, meant that people got treated to interesting new stories each day. And you would compete against two other tragedians, and whoever won, won. And so there wasn't really a second or third place because uh, second place out of three isn't really something that's not that great. Uh, um, so he won one uh, several times more than anybody else. Now... He also made some changes to drama, to tragedy, that are very important on the Athenian stage. He was an important influence on the development of drama precisely by adding a third actor. Before his time, there was much less stage direction, a little bit less plot. The chorus wasn't quite as important because with only two actors on the stage, which is uh, how Aeschylus did things, the plot would be driven far more by dialogue 
It was far more like a, a, a Woody Allen film with two people speaking to each other about something that had happened. And you can tell that that is probably how drama would initially have uh, developed because two characters speaking to each other is very reminiscent to one character uh, speaking and telling a story, very similar to the epics. And so the development of full casts of characters with a very detailed plot is something that's, uh, that's taken quite a bit of time uh, over the last couple thousand years. In any case, this reduced the importance, sorry, reduced the importance of the chorus in presentation of the plot because, of course, there are more characters to act out the plot rather than to have the plot simply narrated by uh, a body politic. And, uh, and this allowed him to develop his characters to a greater extent and earlier playwrights such as Aeschylus. So instead of these characters simply telling us things that have happened to other people or happened to themselves, we can actually see them act them out, which means that we see the characters develop over time. Um, uh, important stuff. Okay, here, I, I just wanted to read this to you. This is a slide from another scholar, um, and uh, actually uh, her name isn't attributed, so uh, I just think it's pretty good work, so I apologize for not knowing her name, but the chorus, she has Aristotle say in the remark, or she doesn't have Aristotle says, she's quoting Aristotle here, says in the remark mentioned previously, should be included as one of the actors and should be a part of the whole and share in the dramatic action, not as in Euripides, but as in Sophocles. This assessment of the Sophoclean chorus seems to fit the plays that have survived. In all of them, the chorus takes its full share of events on stage. So this is giving you an explanation of how the chorus is going to be used in the next two plays that we read. In all of them, the chorus takes its full share in the events on stage. It can even be deceived or misled, either by the protagonist, as in the Ajax, which I used to teach, but not this year, or by the same delusions or lies that blind major protagonists, as we will see in Oedipus Tyrannus, that's Oedipus the King, which we're reading now. The Trachinian women in Electra can also act as the agent of deception, and even become temporarily at odds with the protagonist. Remember, that's the first character of the drama, often the hero or the anti-hero. As in Philoctetes, it can be at odds with or hostile to the main hero, as in Antigone, which we will read second, initially, and in Oedipus at Colonus, which is the third part of the Oedipus cycle, which we will not read, unfortunately. All right, all right. Now, some more biographical information on Sophocles. I'm going to keep throwing these numbers at you so that you know when it is that we are, uh, 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 when it is that these characters existed, when these people existed. Sophocles was born in about 496 B.C., now remember, he makes it all the way to 406. He lives a very long life, about 90 years. He was the son of a man, a man named Sophilus. And remember, that word sophos means um, wise or sophisticated, which is where we get our word sophisticated for. And uh, kleos means glory, kleos. So uh, glory of wisdom is what his name means, and truly he was. His father was a wealthy armor manufacturer, so he made money off war. Very uh, intelligent thing to make money off during the Athenian time. They were constantly at odds with either the Persians or uh, the Delian League, which was uh, essentially their own comrades slash uh, indentured servants, and of course also the Spartans who would eventually defeat them and impose the 30 tyrants above them. He grew up in a rural community as opposed to urban city environment uh, called Hippaeus Colonus in Attica. Attica. And actually um, Attica, the Attic uh, uh, Peninsula, that's what essentially Argos right there, that's uh, the peninsula on which modern-day Greece is. And he would actually have Colonus be uh, where uh, Oedipus and Colonus takes place. So that's where the protagonist Oedipus dies. And uh, I think that's very interesting because that's where Sophocles is born. And it comes closer to the end of Sophocles' career that he writes that. And so it's like he's coming to rest in the place that he first started 
uh, very interesting in a lecture that talks about beginnings and endings. In any case, um, yes, later, uh, Colonus, Hippeos Colonus, would become the setting for at least one of Sophocles' plays, Oedipus at Colonus. It could have been the setting for many more plays. Unfortunately, we've lost 116 of them. Um, so uh, uh, keep your rooms clean so you don't lose uh, 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 masterpieces of world literature. In any case, his artistic career began a little bit later on. Remember that he was born in 496, but he didn't start uh, competing until 468, which means he was about 28 years old or so, 27 to 28. That, and in that very first competition, he took first prize in the Dionysia Theater Competition. Remember the Dionysia Theater Competition happens every year for the Athenians? Um, it is the city Dionysia, the city Dionysia, the city Dionysia, and then the great Dionysia, which is every four years just like the what? Sports, yes. Olympics, just like the Olympic Games. You have the small version, the small version, the small version, the big glorious version. It's still the same with the Olympics. Do you know, uh, if you ever watch swimming or gymnastics, you'll see this is the big competition each year. What do you have instead of the Olympics each year for swimming and gymnastics? It is a certain sort of championship. It is the ultimate sort of championship until we have a universe championship. It is called the world championships. Yes, in any case, he defeated there the reigning master of Athenian drama, Aeschylus, uh, called Aeschylus by most American English speakers, called Aeschylus by British English speakers, and I just happened to do that. All right, he became a man of importance as well in the public halls of Athens as well as in the theaters. So something I want you to note about these Athenian figures, and I'll tell you a little bit about Athenian democracy as we move on. Something here. The Athenians were not ruled by a king. They were a democracy, very similar to us. However, whereas we are a representative democracy, we have the House of Representatives as well as the Senate in the federal system, they were a direct democracy. They had far closer to around 30,000 people in Athens. So uh, almost every uh, landed male, that means a man, a man who owned it land, was considered free and uh, could go see these plays. Uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that you did not just do one job. You had not only your private job, but also your civic or your civil job, your civic duty. And so this was a man not only of letters, but also of the city. And I apologize, but we have to end now.